Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa DeSimone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on an October 2021 proposal floated in the Senate to tax billionaires and high-wealth individuals annually on their unrealized gains. In an attempt to fund a substantial social spending package without broad tax hikes on individuals or corporations, Senate Finance Committee Chairman Ron Wyden, a Democrat from Oregon, unveiled a billionaire income tax. The tax was narrow in scope, by some estimates targeting only about 700 of the wealthiest individuals in the U.S. Today, we invite David Gamage, a law professor from Indiana University, who consulted with the Senate Finance Committee on the development of the tax, to share his insights into the appeal and potential pitfalls of such a tax. Hello, Lisa. Hello, B. So we're sitting here in late October of 2021, and Democrats are, shall we say, scrambling to fund a rather large social spending package and pass it through the budget reconciliation process. Yeah, scrambling is a fair characterization. Uh, As you said, Democrats are trying to pass the spending bill through reconciliation. uh, To explain that at a very high level, it's a special process that one party can use that makes it easier to pass legislation in the Senate. It only requires a simple majority, whereas usually a bill needs 60 votes to pass. And therein lies the rub. Today, in 2021, there are 48 Democrats and two independents in the Senate, with Vice President Harris holding the tie-breaking vote. So the Democrats literally need every last person on board to make this thing work. And that's been easier said than done. The plan originally called for $3.5 trillion in spending, largely funded by increased taxes on individuals and corporations, but it was publicly opposed by Democratic Senators Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Manchin penned an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal asking for a, quote, strategic pause and clearly explaining that he would not support a $3.5 trillion bill. Cinema, who criticized the tax cut passed during the Trump administration, has done a 180. As President Biden explained, she was not willing to, quote, raise a single penny in taxes on the corporate side or on the wealthy people, period leaving Senate Democrats, as we said, scrambling to fund the bill through other, shall we say, more creative means. And that brings us to the subject of today's episode, the billionaire income tax. Reporting for Politico, Brian Failer described the tax as a move to placate cinema. In doing so, Senate Democrats found themselves trying to create a brand new tax system almost overnight. and delighted to welcome our guest today. David Gamage is a professor of law at Indiana University's Mauer Law School. He received his BA and MA from Stanford University, Go Cardinal, and his JD from Yale. He is a prolific scholar of tax law, having authored over 70 articles and essays. From 2010 to 2012, he served as special counsel to the U.S. Treasury Department Office of Tax Policy, where he oversaw the drafting of individual income tax regulations. On top of all of that, Professor Gamage ranks in the top five of the SSRN U.S. tax law professors and in the top 10 of most cited U.S. tax law scholars. We are so fortunate to welcome Professor David Gamage to Taxes for the Masses. Glad to be here. <laughs> we are delighted to have you. And I must say, this is one of the tricky things about technology. You and I are sitting probably a mile apart, uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe two miles apart, but yet we are all here on Zoom. Uh, thank you, COVID. 
All right, so the first question we have, we're talking today about uh, what has been termed in the media the billionaire tax. Billionaire's income tax. Billionaire's important. income tax. Okay, yeah. The media has gotten it wrong quite a lot. So Surprising, that's, that's the right? What? <laughs> so I start by rejecting the premise uh, that this reform sponsored by Senator Wyden should be viewed as akin to a wealth tax. A wealth tax, like Senator Warren and Senator Sanders have proposed, is a new form of tax more directly targeted at large concentrations of wealth. But the bigger problem is the vast majority of the income of the super wealthy, and even more so for billionaires, escapes the existing income tax. So if you think we should have an income tax, and that income tax should be at least mildly progressive, or at least not regressive with respect to the true investment income of the very wealthy, then we need a fix. Just picking up on the fact that you used uh, the term true income there. So what is true income? In order to measure progressive or regressive, we need a measure of income. Mm -hmm. Some reports measure income based just on what's reported to the IRS. Mm -hmm. But if you measure income just based on what's reported to the IRS, then effectively anyone who is escaping the income tax, whether legally, illegally, or otherwise, is going to be treated as though they don't have real income, right? That's clearly, in my view, not the right measure of progressivity, regressivity. Thus, we need a measure of what's sometimes called economic income. I prefer calling it true income. Now, granted, there's no objective measure of true income or economic income. There's a large literature on it, and there's a consensus in most of this literature, although not all, of using what's sometimes called Haig-Simons income, which effectively looks at increases in wealth. If your wealth goes up over time, we call that more or less true income. So first of all, with respect to tradable assets, we're talking stocks, bonds, publicly traded securities, Senator Wyden's proposal would tax annually based on trade market trading value, but only with respect to billionaires. For non-tradable assets, Senator Wyden's proposal would continue to allow deferral, meaning that there would be no tax until billionaires took action to monetize their gains. But the rules would shut down all of the major loopholes through which billionaires currently access their gains without triggering tax. And if you consider any portion of that true income, we would know that the income tax progressivity breaks down at the top, that the effective tax rates are real tax rates, whatever you want to call it, on billionaires and many mega millionaires are much lower than the effective tax rates on the what we might call the working rich, say the physician or surgeon who works for a living for salary or wage income and just makes a high income. And in fact, the effective or real tax rates on billionaires are probably lower than for most middle class Americans who work for salaries, including, say, your neighborhood high school teacher uh, or the like. So you um, were in the position of actually consulting with Democrats and the Senate Finance Committee about this plan. How would it have worked? The simple explanation meaning that there's some more rules as there always are in tax uh, designed to prevent abusive transactions, et cetera. But the simple version, the short version for tradable assets is take the end of year price, treat the asset as though it was sold for that end of year price. If they have net gains and they exceed the threshold for either being a billionaire or of having over hundred million in income over prior years are taxed on those gains 
from deem sales. On the other hand, if there's losses, there's rules for taxpayers to be able to use those losses against prior years realized gains, although there's a little bit more complexity there as there is in the existing tax code with respect to rules for when losses can be used. But mm -hmm. the key point being losses can be used over time if for a taxpayer who say has big gains in year one, but then losses in year two, just with rules meant to prevent abuses. For non-tradable assets is where it becomes more complicated, but mostly because non-tradable assets are extremely complicated for billionaires under current law. Uh, effectively, there would be no tax until what's called a realization event, which could be sale, but could be also lots of other transactions that through which gains are monetized, cashed out. There would also be a deferral charge designed to equalize the effective tax treatment for tradable and non-tradable assets to make it so that there wouldn't be big incentives to move tradable assets out of the tradable space and into non-tradable assets. We've talked a lot on this podcast about IRS enforcement and the role of the IRS in ensuring tax collection, ensuring taxpayers pay their fair share of tax. So when we're thinking about things like non-publicly traded assets, a privately held company, art, jewelry, property, things of that nature, do you think that a provision like this would require a little bit more expertise or funding on the IRS's part to be able to challenge what no doubt would be potentially undervaluations by the taxpayer? Yes, is the simple answer, okay. right? A, a problem with tax enforcement right now is the IRS is underfunded mm -hmm. and it's a lot less resource intensive to go after low-income taxpayers, mm -hmm. especially very low-income or working-class, right. below-middle-class taxpayers. They don't generally hire lawyers to fight the IRS. Uh, you know, we could go on and on. Uh, it's quite a bit more resource intensive to go after very wealthy taxpayers, especially when it comes to investment income, not wage and salary income. Mm -hmm. And so the IRS disproportionately goes after lower income taxpayers because that's what it has the resources to do. But for a reform like this to be fully effective, yes, the IRS needs some more resources. What are the ways that might still be available for the billionaires to avoid this tax? So a few things can be said. One, let's distinguish between clearly illegal evasion. Sure. Billionaires could hide lots of assets. Right. Uh, clearly illegal, not clearly legal. We might, I often call this gaming uh, to mm -hmm. abstract from the question of whether it's legal or not. But that's probably, if it's illegal, it doesn't rise to the level of being criminal. So assuming that the problem is mostly gaming or avoidance, it's hard to do that for publicly traded assets, mm -hmm. right? Right. Not impossible. Every tax system that exists is gameable to some degree, and we shouldn't let the idea that we can attain, attain perfection be the enemy of the good, uh, right? There, the idea that we should try to shut down all gaming or that some gaming will happen is a negative. Well, there's massive gaming in the current system. We should just aim in a positive direction in my view. Uh, for publicly traded securities, the problems are relatively small. Not zero, but relatively small. Sure. Uh, there's some issues around the threshold of what counts as a billionaire. Mm -hmm. Someone who has a billion dollars plus a few million can probably play enough games to get themselves below the billion dollar threshold. So on the other hand, someone whose wealth is multiple billions is gonna find it very hard to get below that billion dollar threshold without say, giving away lots of their wealth to bona fide charities, in which case good for them, 
right? right. Uh, I don't have a problem with that if you want to view it as gaming. Hmm. Uh, so now we're talking about tradable assets. The standard game under current law is often called buy, borrow, die, at least the simple version of it, and there's more complicated variations. The simple version is get your true income in the form of appreciated assets. Mm -hmm. Easy to do if you're the founder of a company. Easy to do if you are a real estate developer. Mm -hmm. Easy to do in different ways, but often more complicated if you are really anything other than someone who works for wage and salary income. In other words, very hard to do if you are an elite athlete or movie star uh, who doesn't own a business, but rather just gets paid salary, and hard to do for certain other ultra-wealthy folks. Uh, but the first move is to extent you can, get, don't get paid salaries and wages. Mm -hmm, right. uh, get your wealth through appreciation of assets. Uh, second, to the extent you need money, and who doesn't, borrow and when you have lots of wealth because of those appreciated assets, it's easy to borrow at trivially low rates. Mm -hmm. And there's private lines of credit and all sorts of financial deals that are structured to help ultra wealthy and billionaires of exactly this. And the final step we call die because under current law, you know, not that Elon Musk or like want to die, uh, but assuming they don't achieve immortality, uh, at the end of their life, any untaxed investment income, unrealized gains will go away and their estates can then do whatever they want with those assets, including selling them and pay off any debt. Uh, the Wyden billionaires income tax reform would attempt to shut down as much of this as possible. You would be taxed each year based on your accumulation, your increases in wealth from tradable assets, but that wouldn't happen for non-tradable assets. So you could, so long as you didn't try to access your assets, there would be no immediate current taxation for non-tradable assets. Mm -hmm. The rules also would not fully shut down borrowing. You could still mm -hmm. borrow based on your non-tradable increased in assets. Certain forms of aggressive borrowing based on assets would be addressed by the rules, but the standard form of your bank knows you're super wealthy, loans you, lends you money, uh, money at a very low interest rate because it knows it's easily gonna be paid back and there's no danger, that wouldn't be addressed. But here we comes the big weakness in my view, because I think there's a danger of one, a future Congress creating new loopholes mm -hmm. or canceling out some of the loophole closing reforms. Sure. Two, probably more importantly, billionaire taxpayers creating new versions of the games that currently exist mm -hmm. that get around the anti-loophole measures. And then the future Treasury Department and IRS under a new administration not sufficiently policing these new games, which has been a common story in the past. Have you given any consideration to what you think would be more effective? Yeah. I mean, abstracting from politics... Let's do that. Yes. Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> we do that a lot on this the, podcast. <laughs> the idea, if you could imagine the parties coming together in a 1986 style compromise. I'm uh, losing my eyes. I'm trying nope. to imagine it. <laughs> uh, or something right like that. Or you imagine some future era where progressives have, you know, well over 60 votes in the Senate and a supermajority in the House and a strong commitment to progressive tax reform or any future world of this sort. Mm -hmm. um, 
I, I think there's multiple ways for a much better system for everyone. One way would be the combination of turning our existing income tax into what's sometimes called a progressive spending tax or progressive consumption tax or progressive expenditure tax. Mm -hmm. uh, this would be a simpler and better system, in my view, for the majority of taxpayers, but on its own, I think, would be not effective when it comes to ultramillionaires and billionaires. Thus, I say the combination of that form of tax reform with a wealth tax uh, applied for the ultra-wealthy. I think there's great synergies between a wealth tax at the top and a progressive spending tax for the top plus everyone else. Uh, I tend to prefer the combination of a wealth tax and a progressive expenditure tax, apart from politics, but mm -hmm. that's more, that would be a more dramatic departure from existing rules. If we mm -hmm. think that the better way to go is to fix the income tax, then I think something re more in the direction of a comprehensive mark-to-market reform is needed. Hmm. Well, one of the things that keeps coming out in the media, at least, is that taxes of this nature are unconstitutional. And so can you speak to that a little bit, both in terms of this billionaire income tax and then also in terms of something that might be more classically thought of as a wealth tax? A case of Eisner v. McCumber, an infamous case in tax history, prevented the uh, taxation of certain forms of corporate transactions holding that you couldn't, under the 16th Amendment, tax unrealized gains. That case was widely derided and has mm -hmm. been overturned by numerous subsequent Supreme Court cases, most mm -hmm. importantly, the later case of Bruin v. Helvering. Uh, and there's a debate now whether Eisner v. McCumber has been completely overturned or only partially overturned. Regardless of whether Eisner v. McCumber has been completely or partially overturned, Wyden's proposal should be safe. The Constitution clearly allows both wealth taxes and taxes on unrealized capital gains. The only question is whether such taxes have to be apportioned or uniform. I think we can definitely say a good thing is that we got evidence and a discussion about constitutionality and about just the motivation for these taxes from someone who truly understands them and not from the media, which sometimes using the media as the source of information on these complex topics, not a great strategy. <laughs> yeah, I learned a lot from our conversation with him and I thought he did a nice job of framing, you know, what is the problem? that we're trying to solve, which is uh, what we've discussed on a prior episode, this ability of the very rich to borrow against their unrealized gains so that they can monetize basically an increase in their wealth without having to pay tax on that increase. Another thing that I'd like to say in the good column here is that we're just racking up more evidence that we do need to increase IRS funding. And really that any tax reform we have is going to require more IRS resources to enforce it. Moving on to the bad, I'm a little, I wouldn't say surprised, but uh, I guess disappointed at the notion that there's resistance to trying to make broad sweeping changes and you know really fundamentally alter the way we want to go about taxing uh, individuals because it seems like maybe it's too much work or it would you know politically right now it would take too much effort to get everybody on board but that means what we're left with is are these small incremental changes that 
you know, it doesn't make sense to keep building a house of cards on a bad foundation. I, and I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad foundation, but if we really think there's this big problem over here and the way to fix it is to build a new house, why are we, you know, putting a new roof on the, the old crappy house? The Democrats seem to have been on a very tight timeline for this. I think this is something that we've come back to again. It takes time to craft these things. Uh, I hope from today's discussion, our listeners understand how complex all of this is, and even sometimes mm. the best intentions are going to be complicated and, and require some tweaking. I think the challenge that we have is that we try to do things so quickly. I agree. And that that kind of triggers a thought, what potentially could be very ugly if something like a billionaire income tax or a wealth tax could pass. And that's what Professor Gamage uh, mentioned, that basically the the rules as they're originally written could effectively erode over time either because a new administration comes in and, and chooses not to enforce those rules as they're written, or because, you know, the wealthy can afford really smart accountants and lawyers to game the system and come up with ways around it. And so if we're not vigilant and not committed to continuing to close down loopholes with new legislation, with new regulations, then we're just going to, you know, 10 years from now, end up in the same position that we're in now. Yeah, I totally agree. And I was really struck by when he said, you know, that's that's one of the problems we have, that everything's become so politicized, that mm -hmm. even if we did pass a really carefully crafted uh, law today, it might not even take 10 years before it erodes, right? right? If in two years, we switch control uh, back to a Republican Congress and presidency, it could be completely undone. And so I think, like you said, if you want to make big structural changes, you need people to agree. You need people to do the maintenance to keep it in place. And we need to get out of this situation where our main priority seems to be just undoing what the other guy did. Um, maybe not even for the sake of good tax policy, but just to kind of stick your finger in their eye and say, I didn't, you know, I didn't like it. So I'm just ripping it up and, and going back to something else. Right. I, I, for one, am uh, getting a little dizzy from the ping pong back and forth we've had over the last several years. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'm Lisa DeSimone. And I'm Bridget Stomberg. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.